Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Memories are the most intimate, immediate, and seemingly incorrigible bonds that link our present and past selves. In normal circumstances, memories seem to have a transparent, self-authenticating quality that provides certitude. Look, it's me with my mother. Yeah? Remember when you were six? You and your brother snuck into an empty building through a basement window. You were going to play doctor. He showed you his. And when it got to be your turn, you chickened and ran. Remember that? You ever tell anybody that? Your mother, Tyrell, anybody? Huh? I'm not gonna have that conversation on this on this episode. Like, I, I mean, we can we can talk about it now if you want, Jamie. No, like, I, I, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, just I mean, it's a general it's a general reaction. Like, I, um, even as great as Tarkin was, there is something that my eye was telling me that okay, this isn't quite real. And of course, with um, Leia in Rogue One, my eye was definitely, you know. Oh, God, that was so bad. I don't think it was bad. That was bad. I I mean, I I don't think it was bad. I just felt like it was just obviously not real. It was obviously uh, artificial. Just everything about it said artificial. Um, Well, and they blew their load on budget, I think, on Tarkin in in that movie. Yeah. And so it's funny to see a difference within context, within the same movie, probably by the same fucking visual effects team where like one job was done way better and the other one was definitely not. And so that's much easier to see. Agreed. And and so those feelings that I have, even with Tarkin, as amazing as he is. I don't have those feelings with Rachel too. Not to say that I'm not saying that there's a little bit of a visual difference in her. There is for sure. But I feel like it's a real person. Nothing about it. My physiological response to it does not say, oh, this is fake. This is artificial. Nothing says that to me. It looks completely right. And and I I think, uh, right. So like Clegg says, um, admittedly, they had an easier task for some things like the fact that she only has two very short lines of dialogue. Mm-hmm. Dialogue is the most difficult part and making someone look realistic when they're talking is really hard. And Tarkin talks a lot in that scene. So that was a big challenge. Although they do have this giant spinning wheel of light. So I think from a lighting perspective, they had a very big challenge uh, to do Rachel, but she does talk less. So it's kind of like some things were easier. Some things were harder in terms of having to do that work. I think mm-hmm. If the, if, if, the, if the intent of the film is to create a verisimilitudinous model of Rachel, 
then I think it's it's okay to say that there's issues with it that have nothing to do with her, with the work of the team because mm-hmm. I think it's unimpeachably great. I think that they did an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Probably probably the most impressive job ever. I think there are things working against the verisimil the verisimilitude of the of the model that are out of their control. But I, I, I do think that it's I mean they they weren't trying to create a CGI character. They were trying to create the illusion of a real person. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. I, and to me, I think it's okay to talk about them in those terms. Um, yeah, I, I agree. And again, if this creates a little bit of controversy, it's only going to be good for the podcast. So I, I encourage it. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. This is episode 19, and uh, I am joined by my regular host, Patrick Green, and our new well, co-host, Dan Fairlito. And Dan has just joined the team officially. He's been on a last couple of episodes, so Dan, welcome to the show. Thanks, everybody. It's kind of welcome weird. aboard, it's man. It's kind of weird saying like that, because like we talk all the time, so it seems kind of fake. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> um so this episode, uh, we are here to talk about a few things. Uh, Rachel, in context of twenty Blade Runner twenty nineteen, and her reappearance in twenty forty nine, and really to kind of set this up. And a lot of people know how I feel about Rachel, but I, I want to kind of I don't feel like I know what you feel about Rachel, Patrick, or Dan, what you feel about Rachel, and kind of what this character means to the series. Of course, in twenty forty nine, we really experience her ghost and. Uh, the effects of her character, um, but as we the conversations move on, we I, we were able to speak to Richard Clegg, who was the VFX supervisor for Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and the second half or the last quarter of this episode will feature that interview that I conducted with him uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, so, thanks everybody for joining us, and uh, so let's just start this off like when you guys. Dan, let me just start with you. What do you What are your thoughts about Rachel? How do you process that character? Um. Well, so going back to the original movie, um, yeah, Rachel is such a powerful character because I think she's the embodiment of one of the big questions that Blade Runner asks all of us of. You know, if what what is the nature of your reality? And if someday someone walked into your life and told you that everything you know and everything you believe about who you are is wrong or is fake, how would you react? You know, and when we go back to the original movie, we see Sean Young embodying those emotions and those reactions. And it's really powerful to me because so much of it is unsaid. Right. I mean, this is why most critics and people who love Blade Runner hated the voiceover, because it it took away the director's display of all these complex emotions and everything through just what was going on on the screen and through dialogue. And I think Rachel's very representative of that, where, you know, her lines are pretty limited. And when you watch her, there's that pain in her eyes and, and that confusion of trying to understand you know, was that really not my mother and and my memories really are someone else's? I mean, if you really put yourself in her shoes and think about being in that situation, that's a really, really jarring and devastating situation. She's, you know, presumably in her 20s in terms of relative human age, um, learning that her whole life is a lie, basically. Um, and I think we can relate to that because we can think what 
would that make us feel like? And so I think about that a lot when I see Rachel. Um, and then of course in 2049, seeing the recreation of Rachel, I'm seeing all those things embodied through Harrison Ford's reactions and his emotion, him thinking back on this woman. And of course, seeing her again, uh, at, at the same exact age as if she had not aged, even though it's 30 years later. Um, so yeah, to me, Rachel is part of really the soul of both of these movies. Um, but she is the physical embodiment of a lot of these philosophical concepts. That's what Rachel brings up to me. And, and I have personal connections to her as well. There are people in my life that I parallel to Rachel, but, but generally she's the embodiment of these, a lot of these intangible emotions. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, what, what about you, Patrick? Yeah, I think she, she, more eloquently than probably any other character I can think of gets at this thing that kind of tugs at all of us in the middle of the night when you can't sleep and you're laying in bed and you have this moment where you sort of forget who you are, you forget where you are, you forget what you stand for. And you know, sometimes like you're lying in a dark room and your eyes are closed and, and you're alone and you're able to tune out any kind of extrasensory stuff. And you realize that like, you're just the sort of vessel floating in a body and you're entirely defined by the story you keep telling, just like we were saying in the Sapper's Tree episode, like our lives are layers upon layers of narrative that we tell by the memories that we choose to accept or that we can't get out of our heads. And we become this, this synthesis, you know, the synthetic um, agglomeration of different memories that we you know, call ourselves. And I think Rachel, in having that ripped away from her, goes through something that is extremely horrifying and yet incredibly human. And I think that it's something that we can all relate to. You know, when I was a kid, um, I I used to like have these episodes that would really freak me out. And I remember this so specifically because it would always happen when I was singing. I, I you know I sing a lot for listeners who might not know that. Um, and I, I used to sing in a boys' choir. It was just like you know very intense choir. We'd, we'd be there for like twelve hours a week. And um, I promise I'm getting back to Rachel at, at the end of this. And, um, and I would be singing and I would be kind of lost in the moment and I would start looking around the room and I would kind of momentarily forget not who people were, but like what they were. And it was just kind of like this transient disassociative thing that I've kind of lost as I've gotten older, which I think is really good. But I think there's something about, you know, we're so close to losing that all the time to like to losing the way that we define ourselves and in losing the way that we define ourselves, we run the risk of losing ourselves entirely. And, and that idea of oblivion is really freaky to me. And so, so there's that undercurrent of that kind of existential horror that Rachel goes through that I think is really effective. But of course, that's not the end of her character. Like that's the beginning of her actual character and that's the finding of herself. And she doesn't give up. She doesn't kill herself. She decides to run. She decides to, to, to go with Deckard. She decides to, as we know, bring a miracle into the world. She goes, she goes into hiding. She, she goes on the law. She does all these things that, you know, as Joshi says in 2049, could potentially break the world, you know, and she becomes this incredible legendary heroine who, although her presence is almost entirely absent from 2049 and from, from honestly, much of 2019 as well, she becomes much larger than that because she represents anti-oblivion, you know, when confronted with the most existentially horrifying thing anybody could be confronted with, she chooses to, um, to, endure and to find out who she really is. And I think we can all kind of relate to that, you know? Absolutely. She's a character, you know, that I, that I, I feel is for myself, 
and I know you and all three of us have had these conversations, whether together or separately. Um, but she's a character for me that I, I, I experience completely emotionally. Um, and it's interesting when I think about Rachel and I think about 2019 and when we first meet her, what is she? What is she? She is cool and calm and she has purpose. You see it in her face. She's working at the Tyrell Corporation. She's dressed to the nines. She's just, she's just, you know, she is like on point. And then when we meet her again um, after, of course, we don't see this, um, but it is somehow it gets back to her, whether that's from Tyrell or whoever, that she is informed that she is, in fact, a replicant. And then when we see her again, a lot of her character breakdown starts, you know, when she's in the elevator with Deckard or Deckard realizes he's in the elevator with her and she's dressed very different. Her hair looks different. She's not as poised as she was. She's just, we can see her throughout the entire film just breaking apart. Um, and her, that, I remember as a teenager seeing that uh, character and I wasn't processing things the way that I process things now as an adult, um, but I remember just experiencing her sadness. And um, I don't, I, I, and for me, and I, you guys know this, and I'm, and obviously we're talking to our listeners and I'm not really talking, I mean, we're having a discussion, but I, uh, a lot of my own personal I don't know. I've always worked my some of my personal shit out in movies, and a lot of these characters that have lived inside of me are because these things continue to live inside of me. And Rachel um, has that that loss that she's experienced, where everything is torn away from her, and you see it being torn away from her. And then she goes to Deckard's apartment, and he's tearing it away from her. Still, he's aiding in that. He's kind of aiding in that takeover. She's she's come to him for for some type of hope, and he's not there to give her any. And then he kind of, you know, as we discussed before, as we've all seen, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, bad joke, bad joke, go home, you know. Yeah, it's like the worst scene. You're not a replicant. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It was a burp. Totally. And then you see her face even more devastated by that. Like, how do you not take this seriously? You know, like, I don't even know who or what I am now, and you're joking with me. And you can tell kind of Deckard is a little bit, feels a little bit bad about that. He doesn't really know what to do. You just see it that he just doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what to say to this thing. This, I mean, she's a woman, but in his mind, in the mind of the people that matter, she is not a woman. She is not a person. She is a thing. She is common. And especially, he's a Blade Runner. Like, he's he's gifted at killing, retiring people, things just like her. You know, like, to, to him, he, she's just a, you know, a quarry at that point, at least for a moment. Yeah, know? yeah. And, uh, I, I he, she, again, you know, she's just this character where, you know, and I, 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 as we talk about these things, for me, this, I can't talk about Rachel without making it personal. I just can't. Like, I experience Rachel so powerfully because Rachel, because I continue that, that struggle with our, our, our identity and who we are and who are we in the, in the, in the shadow of loss, um, and Rachel is a character who lives in the shadow of loss. And the only time we see her um, recover from that is right towards the end of 2019 when she she finds a little bit of herself in the love that Deckard has for her and the love that she shares for him. That's the only thing that's true for her. That's the only thing, that's the only um, currency that they share. Everything else is suspect at that point. Um, and I, as... I, I am very much the same way as both of you very well know. I mean, even 
I struggle with loss on a daily basis. Um, and Rachel lives in me because I, those eyes of hers, I mean, you can just see it in her eyes that like, please tell me who I am or please help me or something, you know, you just see it in her face. And that's just, I, I live, I live, I live in that in many ways, um, by nature of what I've experienced in my life. And so that is why the, her character is so powerful for me. And even when she returns in 2049, her return is probably more powerful for me than all of her character in 2019, just because it's, it represents everything that you've lost coming back to you. You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched. The egg hatched? And? And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. Uh, implants. Those aren't your memories. They're somebody else's. They're Tyrell's nieces. Okay. Bad joke. I made a bad joke. You're not a replicant. Go home. Okay? No, really. I'm sorry. Go home. I, I, I can barely even talk about it. It's so, it's such, it's such a powerful thing. So I'll leave it right there um, for now in terms of how I experience and what my thoughts on Rachel. Yeah. And, and I should say we, we, the three of us uh, in Ryan and, and other people that have been on the show, Micah and others, we all and Evie, who was just on, we all really want to talk more about Rachel. So I'm sure that there will be a, a much longer discussion about this that goes a lot more in depth down the road. How do you guys like, do you guys process her emotionally how do you, do you guys look at her as like, oh, that's interesting? Or do you personalize Rachel's experience? Because I feel like I'm kind of not alone. I'm sure there are people who whatever, you know, we all take different, we all process 2019 differently. But how do you process her as a character? Um, I mean, I do, for me, it's kind of split between, it's kind of split three ways. I think in 2019, I process her a lot. I internalize her emotion and what she's going through. And I put myself in her shoes in terms of finding these things out for the first time and questioning your memory, questioning your reality, questioning who you are as a person or trying to understand that you're not really a real person, which is an even deeper sense of that. Um, in 2049, I really empathize with Deckard and I put myself in his shoes. And so I view her a lot from his eye view. And I think, God, what powerful emotions would be running through you if you saw this person again, as if she hadn't aged a day, almost identical to how you last remember seeing her, including the way she's dressed and everything. Like, I mean, you can think about anybody you've lost and how powerful that would be if all of a sudden that person was just to walk back into your living room in that way. Um, and, and then thirdly, I think that I, yeah, I, I'm kind of related, but thirdly, I, I view her from the point of view of people 
in my life that I actually have lost or, or have been away from and imagine those people coming back to me in that way. So, um, yeah, like that's usually how I view Rachel. It depends on the context. I have, it's complex and, um, yeah, I have mixed emotions about her. Yeah. For, for me, um, it, she, she's in some ways more of an intellectual thing, but I feel like it, because of her reappearance in 2049, she kind of retroactively became more of an emotional thing for me. And I agree with Dan. For, for me, it's more because of the way that Deckard um, is confronted with her. And I'll tell you a quick little story about that in a second. But um, in, in 2019, Rachel, for me, always represented just this like um, completely lost soul who had to completely recontextualize herself and find out who she really was. And that was something that I think I've always been afraid of for my life, but I've never actually experienced, um, perhaps in the way, in the way that you have, I've, I've never felt that kind of, um, sort of like deep existential loneliness before. I've always been afraid of it and, and terrified by it, but I've never really gone through it before. But I think we all, you know, it, Rachel for me, like, so I, you know, the first time I saw 2019, I was 12 years old. I was actually just telling my mom the story last night. And while I'm talking about my parents and my, and my family, I want to give a shout out to my sister, Claire, who, as we record this is watching 2019 for the first time. So I want to make sure I get that out there. Nice. <clears throat> um, when I was a kid and you know, I was 12 years old when I encountered 2019 for the first time, and it was in a VHS copy that I got at a head shop yes. and I took it home and I, and I watched it and I was really, really identifying with Rachel a lot because, um, I didn't know, I had no fucking clue who I was for the first time in my life because I was just old enough to understand that I didn't, that things weren't, you know, um, necessarily the way that I thought they were or that like that, you know, I wasn't who I thought I was necessarily because, you know, you're changing a lot and your brain is developing a lot and you're losing a lot of friends that you had. People are dying that you're getting to know. And then you're, you're sort of reforming yourself and realizing that you're not who you thought you were. And, and I, I think about this a lot now, you know, as a, I'm 32, I feel like I'm, I'm just now like this year kind of getting who I, who I really am, but I haven't lost that. So because of that, I've, I've never felt, quite that akin to Rachel, um, before, but, but my little brief story about 2049 that, um, I think has affected the way that I've interpreted the scene that we're going to be talking about in some ways that are perhaps, um, kind of, kind of messing with my interpretation of it. There's a really specific moment in my life that was like four years ago where I revisited a house. And so, um, so growing up, we always had dinner at my, uh, Sunday dinner at my grandmother's house and the whole family would get together and there's this huge affair and we've gone for hours and hours. And my childhood is really defined by that anchor point. Like I really, as a kid identified with those Sunday night dinners and, um, you know, very close with my family. And it was really important to me. And, um, my grandmother died when I was actually, when I was, I think I was 12, it was probably right after I saw Blade Runner. It was that same year, I think. And, uh, it was really difficult for me and the whole family, basically she was supposed to have passed, um, on one day and she ended up hanging on for about a week in hospice care in that, in that same house. And we all stayed in the whole family. We all slept in her bed. And it was a very, um, very formative, very emotional thing for me. And, and, uh, basically after her passing, that house kind of receded in, into my memory. Like, you know, we continued to go a little bit to visit, you know, my uncle and then, um, and then he passed away and then it, and then it was sold off. And then we didn't see it for a, a decade or 15 years for a very long time. And I saw all my cousins in Connecticut, um, about four years ago and we decided to go back and find the house to see it. We didn't even know if it was like still there, you know, and we walked up to it and I was like very physically shaking walking up to it because I saw it and I saw it in, in two places at once. And this is kind of a Rachel moment. I saw it as a child 
the child that I was and then I saw it as the adult that I had become. And I was aware of the gulf between those things and the time that had passed and the experience that had passed. And I felt in that moment like I was sort of like on two different planes and we approached it very slowly and I walked up to it and it looked the same. And then I looked inside and the entire interior had been gutted out and redone because it was, you know, had been flipped. And that moment for me uh, was kind of extraordinarily um, painful. And I've never like gotten over that because um, a lot of my life happened there and now it's, it's, you know, it's gone. And and it's not only gone though, it's sort of transmogrified into this thing that I don't recognize anymore. So for me, when Deckard says that her eyes were green, um, I, it, I think of that moment. I think of that moment of feeling like, oh my God, like the universe isn't something static, like things change and I don't have any fucking control over it. And my memories will always be in a continual process of recontextualization. So that's kind of what, how Rachel resonates with me, I think. That's really cool. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I think that it's, it's always fascinating, um, what characters do and how they, how they affect us and how, you know, the same character that we see doing the same things over and over in the movies that we've seen 10,000 times, we've seen them bend down and pick something up or turn their head. We're all seeing the same things, but we're not seeing the same things. That head turn of the head, that, that point, that, that dialogue, it's resounding in us differently, um, based off our experiences. Um, and Rachel's ongoing loss of her identity, the loss of her agency, and that's really what's at stake or at play with her is she's her her. It's not like she's just like I don't know. It's it's not a general sort of like human experience where maybe somebody died, um, and you know you have to get over it or whatever or these kind of normal things that we go through as uh, as people. Um, Rachel's very existence has been torn from her. And I don't know if we can fully understand what that's like. And I think for myself, um, you know, for those people who don't know, I grew up in one of kind of America's last hippie communes until I was 23. And, you know, I grew up, everyone telling me that I was special because I I grew up that way. And it was very, very unique way of life. And at the age of 32, I started on a journey to make a documentary about this place. And I did, and I finished it. But by the time I was over, I had lost everything. Everything, I had lost the church that I loved, even though the truth had to come out. And so I came out the other side completely stripped of everything. Um, and so when I've read, I mean, I've always watched, I've always watched and enjoyed Blade Runner, but really Rachel's character didn't come front and center to me until about three years ago. Until I, I, I'd always kind of identified with Deckard and like, yeah, where do we belong in life? You know, those questions that we ask. But then I saw this Rachel and it's like, even this photo that was told that was true is not no longer true anymore. She doesn't belong. And that sense of where do I belong? I don't belong anywhere. I don't even belong on this planet. I don't even, I, I shouldn't even be breathing because they say so. Um, and uh, that's a powerful thing. And that, 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 that idea of, of, um, just the, the loss of agency, and, but other people telling you these things. And so because they are the law, they are true. Um, and uh, I, I just think that her, who she is, and as we've talked about, it's going to be a, a longer episode with more people as we kind of really deep dive into who Rachel is and what she represents. Um, but we can kind of pivot into 2049 because we want to kind of talk about 
the appearance of Rachel or the reappearance of Rachel. And I had a couple of questions and we don't know anything for sure. I've talked about this with, with Patrick. I've talked about this with Dan in terms of what Rachel did we see. Um, and I am of the belief that the Rachel we saw is actually the, the Rachel who loved Deckard. Now she isn't the same physical body, but her memories are the same. Um, I, I, I have no way of proving that, but I could just, the only way I can prove it is the look in her eyes. She had the same look in her eyes looking at Deckard as the original did. And that has to be from some type of knowledge of who Deckard was. Not because they're telling someone said, okay, you're going to meet this guy who loved you 30 years ago. No, she had conviction in her eyes when she looked at him. She was begging him, don't you love me? Like she knew him. Um, and it was a powerful thing. But I don't, that's my interpretation of her. I don't know what you guys think about that. Whether how you experienced her, was she just representative of other things? Or do you think she was more than that? You think I have nothing to offer but pain? Only I know you love pain. Pain reminds you the joy you felt was real. More joy than Do not be afraid. Well, I think to your point, uh, which this happens all the time, I think, in Blade Runner in both movies, is again, there's a inherent and magical ambiguity to a lot of these things that was set up on purpose and with the exception of one famous interview that Ridley Scott and Harrison Ford did together or, or, or separately, but, you know, everybody knows their opinions about what they think about Deckard. But outside of that, most of the people involved in these projects have chosen to allow the ambiguity to stay. And, for example, I was reading an interview that I know the rest of you have read uh, with Phil Nove where people brought up fan theories about this and that and the other thing. And Phil Nove's responses most of the time are, well, wow, that's a really cool theory that's really interesting. I'm not going to comment on it or uh, I'm not going to say one way or the other, which to me is the perfect response because the ambiguity and ability for people to make up their own minds on certain topics in these movies, like the very famous is Deckard a replicant or not. um, The fact that there aren't enough concrete facts to point you in either direction means you have to make up your own mind. And so the way Jamie is convinced um, that Rachel is this is an exact copy of the original Rachel all the way down to her memories, which means she would have all the same emotions. You know, I would say things that point to that certainly being plausible is the fact that how else would you coach her, um, on having the emotion that she's having and on reaching out to Deckard in the right way. Certainly Meander Wallace or any of his minions aren't going to spend time doing acting coaching with her, right? The easiest thing to do would be to implant her with at least some of Rachel's memories to get her to automatically have certain feelings about Deckard as soon as she saw him. And and one could argue, if you're downloading a few things, why would you edit it? You would probably just download all of Rachel's memory, including her implants and including her experiences with Deckard. Now, where those memories stop in terms of where the Wallace Corporation uh, no longer has access to her memories after she escaped with Deckard, et cetera, et cetera. One could argue where that point is. And so how much of her experiences with Deckard does she remember? 
this Rachel, of course, is not going to remember. Well, I, w- I won't say, of course, this Rachel is unlikely to remember being pregnant and giving birth and dying in childbirth and all of that. But that all depends. Are these memories embedded in their DNA, which they use their DNA, her DNA to recreate Rachel or able to pull like software, kind of like the memory banks that they show in Wallace. So, you know, there's lots of things that you can scrutinize there and think about. And that's the beautiful thing about these movies is they give you just enough information that you can dive deep into them and they hold up really well to examination, but none of it is going to give you the answer for sure. You have to really go with your instinct on what you think is going on and, and what you think is going on in Rachel's head, because otherwise, you know, you don't have any concrete proof. Uh, right. and, I, and I think that's a great thing. Although let's let, let's just just for the sake of fun, let's let's take a second and think just from a technological standpoint, based on what we've seen in, in the movies, what she might have in her head. So so we know they have those memory orbs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they would they they would not have one of those for her because they didn't recover her body, right? They just have the the skeleton. Mm-hmm. So I think we can probably rule that out. They have archival recordings of her in Tyrell's headquarters, right? Right. The conversations. How would they reconstruct? I don't. I like. I, I'm trying to because I agree, Jamie. I I agree with you 100. It seemed like she very clearly had no idea that she was not the original Rachel. I, I think that 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 Rachel too was for all intents and purposes Rachel, um, at least in terms of how she constructed her own identity based on her own memories, etc. But uh, but how how did she how did they get there? What what do you think they used? I just think that uh, her memories are encoded into her the DNA of her bones. I think every experience she had, I mean, her DNA was active and living in her bones. I, I just think that the way that they were engineered, where their memories are stored. Of course, again, like Dan said, to your, his point, for sure, we don't know any of this. Um, yeah. I just have the conviction of the face that I saw. And that face that right, right. that I just, just like, like... It's like a dagger in my heart. I mean, like she just had like that look of the authentic Rachel. Um, yeah. And I mean, then the, the, here's poses the question though. Okay. So she's a recreation of Rachel and say they did what they, what we, we surmise, whether it's her memories from her DNA or it's implanted partial memories. Does that make her Rachel or does that make her someone else with Rachel's memories? And does it matter? Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, and then, Harrison Ford, you see the longing in his eyes to kind of want to go there with her, but then he ultimately says, no, I can't. And he rejects her, and then she's killed. Um, Which, again, I believe that Rachel, the Rachel, was killed again. Um, I mean, who knows? I mean, they they might even bring her back and try to get her pregnant. You know, who knows? Who knows? We're dipping our toes into the very, very deep philosophical concept of what is it to have a soul and what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> Which right. is dangerous for an episode that we're trying to keep kind of short. And I think <laughs> we'll definitely delve into much more deeply right. when we do a full right. uh, unfettered, you know, unlimited episode on Rachel. But she, but, um, but she asked it's true. It's true. I mean, and, and yeah, we'll get much more into this too, but go, go Jamie. Sorry, well, I was going to say she, but her character, even the, the replicant or the, the Rachel 2.0's character, it begs the question, um, who are we and are we our memories and we can't even Dan and I've had this discussion uh, and we talked about this on a podcasting episode in terms of, or an episode of shoulder of Orion where in terms of 
our memories are, we're going to reconstruct our memories a little bit differently in the way that the things happen. I know we all have done that. We might remember something a little bit differently and someone else might say, no, 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 no. Wasn't it like this? And you're like, no, it was like this. So who's right in the situation? So mm-hmm. you go, you'll go back into that. And um, does it like, does it matter if those memories of the, of the real Rachel aren't hers or not? Because they're, they formed her already. They've formed her. They've given her agency. It doesn't matter. Um, so she, for all intents and purposes, is Rachel. Um, again, we are dipping our toes into kind of the unknown. This is, um, but I, I don't think that we can even talk about her. Certainly, we're going to get more into this and more in depth. And it's probably going to be a very passionate conversation between us and other people. Um, but I think we have to ask those questions as we kind of, as this Rachel has returned to us for a moment. Um, because I, I just feel like there was so much more. That that scene is powerful. Why is it powerful? Is it powerful because we're watching Deckard's response? Or is it powerful because of what Rachel represents? Or is that Rachel? Or for me, it's like you said, Dan, earlier. It's like everything you've loved coming returning to you. You know? Um, and mm-hmm. how uncanny that is and how impossible that is. But we've all kind of been there in some ways. Uh, I mean, I don't know if I've been there, but well, no, 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 no. I think I, I think actually I'm there in some ways in my life right now. Experience. Sure. I, I mean, I think like when you've gone back to Chicago, for example. No, you know, no, like when no, you've no. gone. I don't mean that. No, I know. I, I mean like when and I, I'll just I'll just use this this analogy, Patrick. So when you look at your wife, and I don't know how you you guys experience emotion or how that works with you, but like when you look into the eyes of love and it returns itself to you, that is everything yeah. coming back to you. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'm experiencing that in some ways in my own, in my own way, you know, even mm. it, during the arc of this podcast that we've, that mm-hmm. we've had, uh, based on people that I've met, um, uh, losing right, her. right, right. Um, so I, 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 I think that, uh, I, she, she is so multi-layered as a, as a character. It's not, she's not just Rachel and with her agency or Rachel 2.0 and, her mysterious agency, she is everything. Um, every kind of ghost we have to, whether she's a ghost, whether she's real. Um, and I, I, I can't even kind of iterate how powerful she is, at least for me. And I feel like I'm kind of alone in that. I kind of feel the way for Rachel that you guys feel the way for Joy. And I know this isn't a discussion about <laughs> Joy. But anyways, I have to bring it up, though. I mean, I have to kind of compare the two yeah. because I'm having this experience with this, this thing that may or may not be real. Right. Yeah. And I think these discussions of what makes you truly you and what is the soul and stuff apply to both Rachel and joy. And and just for the record, Rachel is a much more powerful character to me than joy, but joy is newer and something that's interesting to explore because we've had less time to talk about her. And so she is really fascinating and is, is both real and not real in different ways than Rachel. And so it brings up, uh, interesting conversation in different ways. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, to draw a parallel in my own life, you know, I've said this to my wife, Mary before in trying to describe, um, what looking at her face does for me. And aside from obviously these complex things that get very personal about, um, you know, what, what beauty you see in the person that you love and, and what memories you have with that person. But part of it, and I've said this to her before is that, her face 
reminds me of home. Her face makes me feel at home. And there's a familiarity there that no one else can give me when I look at them. And I think that's part of it for Deckard too. Not that him and Rachel ever built a home. I don't mean in the literal sense, but I mean in terms of that calmness Mm -hmm. and that warmness that you feel inside and that comfort with that person that you love. Um, I think Rachel's face does that for him as well. Um, and again, it's so powerful that, and, and, you know, we've talked about eye color before as well. And in terms of, you know, we, for the most part, I think we agree that they did get her eye color, right. And when Deckard forces himself to turn away and say her eyes were green, he's lying to try and make Wallace and his henchmen think that he does not care about this version of Rachel. And I think he does care about her. And when she's killed, that affects him pretty profoundly, but he has to tell himself, look, this isn't the same person. It's not her. And you have to let it go because she's already gone. Um, and, and yeah, all of that is really, really powerful. Yeah. Uh, which I, I think we should pivot towards kind of our last section in this kind of short Rachel discussion. And one of the reasons why we're here is let's talk about the creation of Rachel. And uh, we're going to have a very honest and frank discussion about this. Uh, for some of us, it was very impactful. For others, it was impactful, but it was different. Um, I think all three of us have different opinions of what we're seeing. Um, I know for myself, I the, I think that the work itself that uh, the motion picture company did is f- the most flawless recreation of a human I've ever seen. We were talking earlier off before we started recording about, well, at least I was talking about, you know, when you see something that's CGI, your brain's te- there's something that your brain says, no, this isn't real, whether it's motion, whether it's too smooth or whatever. We all have that sense. All of us do. Yeah, the uncanny valley. Yeah, and I had that with Tarkin. Uh, we were talking about Rogue One, and Tarkin was fucking amazing. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen. But there is that part of that uncanny valley that that Tarkin, I just, my brain was telling me this quite isn't, isn't quite real, even though it's probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. And then we kind of pivoted, or I pivoted to to Leia at that last scene. And Leia was interesting, but that wasn't Leia. And it was, it just, the you could, the difference, you could tell there was a completely different team working on Leia than was working on Tarkin. Um, I mean, she had some of the archetypal features of Leia, but it just didn't look like her. It just looked weird. It just looked like a, it looked like a clone. It didn't even... It had, it had like the Polar Express thing going on. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but with yeah. Rachel in 2049... My first reaction when I saw her was, well, they put Sean Young in makeup and they de-aged her. Um, I thought, because I could tell there's a little bit of a difference, but in my mind, I saw a human, and I still see a human. And I didn't see any dithering, and I didn't see any anything, and I didn't see anything weird. Nothing tripped my brain saying that this wasn't real. I was of the belief that this was somebody that was Sean Young in makeup, and they de-aged her a little bit. And Because I've also seen, um, there's a, a trailer with Sean Young in it, and she plays a cop in this movie that's coming off on, like, some LGBT channel called Here or Logo or something like that, and she plays this cop. And she's got makeup on and her hair's put back, and she looks amazing! And I'm thinking, they just dressed her up, and she looked really good, and they augmented her a little bit. There was no, there was no, like, glass between mics, and I felt her so emotionally, you know? Um, And my brain was telling me, no, this is a person. Um, And so I'm curious what you guys think. Yeah, I I, uh, I agree pretty much with what you said. I think on my first viewing in theaters, uh, 
although I certainly knew there had to be some CGI involved, at least in de-aging mm-hmm. the original actor, you know, in de-aging Sean Young or something like that. I felt a mixture of sort of a mysterious confusion in the sense that I was like, how did they pull that off? And I started to think about it and I knew Sean Young was involved in filming or at least in the movie. And so I started to think, huh, how did this process work technically? And I kind of had no idea. Um, and yeah, I agree that in terms of the uncanny Valley, like, yeah, Tarkin is at the same time, an incredible feat of technology. Um, and again, there's a contextual thing here where Tarkin has many, many lines of dialogue compared to Rachel too. And that I think is admittedly, uh, by the people in this industry, a very difficult thing to do. Well, the more dialogue there is, you know, dialogue and mouth movement is one of the most difficult things to do realistically. Um, and, but yeah, at, at, especially after my first viewing, I did not get any instinct in my gut that was telling my brain, this is off, or this is not a real person, or this is CGI. Um, I think I've rewatched it many, many, many times in detail. And, you know, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't call it a hundred percent perfect. I feel like if you really watch it in detail and are able to pause it and stuff like you can see that it's slightly different than the original Rachel, but it's so minimal that I think, especially at full speed within the context of the rest of the movie, it's almost imperceptible. So, um, yeah, I, I'm curious to see how it looks in 10 years when they've done this again with better technology and other characters and to see how it holds up. I suspect it's going to hold up uh, really well and better than just about anything else that's ever been done in this way. So Cool. Uh, <laughs> Patrick doesn't agree, and I think that that's great. I think it, it, it livens the discussion. Patrick had a little bit of a different experience with this Rachel, and uh, tell me what how you experienced it. Well, I, I mean, I, I let me say that I want you to really listen to what I'm saying because I, I don't want to be misinterpreted. Okay, what what I'm saying specifically is that they did absolutely incredible work on this. I think that the 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 verity of that character is astounding especially when you take into account the lighting she's lit directly the entire time you see her but with full lighting uh she has actual speaking dialogue like dan said and and changing lighting by the way and the lighting is shifting around right she's in motion there's there are a lot of things and she's also full frame it's a close-up of her face i mean it is insane and when you hear the interview that you're going to hear after this and you listen to that. I mean, it's it's just it's mind boggling what they went through, you know, between, uh, you know, getting this motion capture, you know, having this actress there, having Sean Young on set in Budapest, having all these things and then doing the composite with the skeletal structure, um, you know, deconstructing scenes of dialogue from 2019. It's absolutely incredible. And 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 any criticism that I have, I, I really have to be clear, is nothing against the work that that MPC did, because I think it is uh, groundbreaking. I think it sets a path forward. I do think that. Some maybe maybe this is my fault. I don't know. I have an issue with a, a very strong sense of an uncanny of an uncanny valley in this, and I have tried. Re- you guys both know that this is the only thing in the entire movie that I'm not totally happy about, and that sucks for me because it's a really powerful moment that narratively really gets to me, that emotionally fucking kills me. That and I've seen this movie I don't know 15 times now. I, I love the entire film and I love the inclusion of this scene. And I, and I don't want you to get me wrong on that. Okay. 
I, I think what they did is absolutely incredible. I just think that because it is so close to being real, and yet to me, and this could just be me, discernibly not real, the Uncanny Valley is like just hitting some sensor in my limbic system very, very, very hard. And, um, you know, I, I the first time I saw it, I was breathless. I, I could not believe that I was seeing Rachel. But even in that moment, my Uncanny Valley pinger was going off. And uh, and I think that that has, says probably much more about the way that I personally recognize faces than it has anything to do with the work of MPC, which, again, I think is absolutely incredible. Or, you know, Nelson's, uh, you know, production direction, which I, I think is unimpeachable as well. I think it's the best art-produced movie I've seen probably in my entire life. Um, but uh, but b- because there is this problem that where the closer to real you get with a non-real human object, the more likely it is that you will recognize it as being something fake. I, 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 I wish in my heart of hearts that I could trade places with you guys, you know? I, I really, truly do. And I don't think that I have any kind of deeper perceptiveness or anything of facial structure. Like, I, I don't think it's anything to do with that. But being completely honest, I cannot watch that scene and not think of the digital compositing going on behind it. And I think I would probably say the same if I didn't know that any of that had happened because there are certain things, um, and, and again, not their fault, but to me, in the way that her mouth moves, in the way that the light hits her skin, that I can't, I just, for some reason, can't get over. Um, that being said, I think it's an, it's it's like groundbreaking work. Um, I've I've mentioned you know in private conversations with you guys that I think Tarkin is uh, for me more effective, and I think that the reason why he's more effective is because he's bathed in shadow almost the entire time. <laughs> you almost never actually see his full face, and because of that, I think they can get away with a lot more, right? Because I think that when uh, an image is partially obscured, the facial recognition systems in your brain fill in the blanks. And, you know, Peter Cushing's face is one that I love very dearly. I'm a big fan of his. And I feel like I have a really strong image in my head of what he looks like. And so in the shadows, I was able to project that. With Rachel, um, they did not rely on any crutches of literally any kind. So from a technical standpoint, I agree. It's it's miles above anything that's ever been done, including Tarkin. From a verisimilitude, from a verisimilitude standpoint, to me personally, as whatever messed up viewer I am, um, I don't <laughs> buy it as being authentic, and I can't. I can't change that. I really can't. I know we've argued about this a lot. Well, and I also um, think that that you know. part of that has to do with the way I perceive Rachel and the way I perceive Rachel coming back is very emotional. I think my emotional experience of this character enhances and clouds how I perceive Rachel 2.0. I don't see her flaws. Mm-hmm. I because I see so much of me in her. I feel like I'm looking at myself in some ways. Um, so I, I, and I know my flaws. And so any flaws I might see in her that I don't see, I, I really, you know what I mean? I, it's kind of complicated to say, but I, so to your point, I think my experience of that scene, and I want to ask you guys this one question too, like, um, um, did you, when I saw 2049 and we're going to wrap up really soon. Um, I'll I'll leave it. I'll leave it with this uh, question to both of you. And before we get into the uh, interview that I did with Richard Clegg, we're going to play you some audio from an interview that Sean Young did on a a radio show about her involvement. Very interesting. But when Deckard was sitting at the Wallace corporation, my gut was telling me Rachel's about to walk on screen. I just knew I knew it. Did you guys feel that way? Oh man, uh, I knew something monumental was happening just because of the way they set up the scene. Uh, 
I don't think, no, I don't think that I imagined that Rachel was going to walk on screen. I, I was just sucked into the scene and holding my breath for something. But I was I holding did my not. breath too. Yeah. 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 Oh, the entire theater was. Yeah, no, no, nobody was making a sound. And you could, and when she walked out, you could hear audible gasps from people. You yeah. know, uh, which I'll never forget. I, I mean, that entire experience of seeing the movie for the first time was was such a powerful thing from yeah. beginning to end. But yeah. the mo- the most powerful part of it was was easily that because everybody knew Harrison Ford was in it. He's on the poster. You know, like there wasn't mm-hmm. this big mystery reveal. Although obviously people like you know were affected by it. But when Rachel walked out, you know, regardless of whether or not anybody had any uncanny value value problems with her the the sheer narrative force of that was uh, like a hurricane it was yeah. incredible i mean like and i, I still was... every time every time i see that scene it, it, any 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 sort of pattern recognition issues aside that i might have in my brain i am really affected i cry in that scene every time we watch it I just watched it last night and i cried yeah i mean it's I, a really powerful moment for me you know? i experience it the same way over and over it's like i see it again for the first yeah. time i like i, I upload it so much too. yeah and i uploaded that uh, video to our shoulder of orion page and every time I watch that video, I feel the same way. Like, I can't believe what I'm seeing. Um, I could wish I could explain this experience even to you guys better. I, I can't explain it anymore, but it's one of the most powerful scenes I've ever seen in my life. And uh, uh, quickly, I'll just relate it to another very powerful scene in a film that I absolutely adore. When, and we've been talking about, I've been talking about this for the past two days, when, uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart's character of Scotty is in Vertigo and he sees a recreation essentially that he's made of Madeline walk out from, you know, the shadows into the light. Um, and that gasp that you see him and that we're all experiencing with him. I mean, that's, I, I feel that powerful as well. Um, and we will we'll talk about that at another, at another point, but, uh, but Patrick, just quickly, did you, anticipate that that she would walk out did you feel like she would or were you like dan were you just experiencing the the moment oh i knew she was coming oh Definitely. you did okay yeah. okay oh I, yeah i didn't I, did, I guess that she was i felt like we're about to see her uh, but i was hoping i was hoping and i was praying that she was i didn't know for sure and so it's like one of those things where um you you're hoping and praying for something and it, it appears in front of you um and yeah. I, I think we've all maybe experienced that in some ways whether something that we thought was gone is now back. Um, yeah. And how that blows us away. So, well, I, I also, I, I want to say that, um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not the only person who has sort of uncanny value issues with this, but something that a lot of people have said that have felt that way has been that there's something powerful in the imperfections of, of her recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, however minor they are, because it seems like, um, it kind of gets across the point that, she is the same and yet not the same. Like mm-hmm. she's the same, but she's transfigured somehow. There's something different about her. Yeah. Um, and so, so for me personally, that that's that's how I have reconciled whatever cognitive issues I have with perceiving her face the same, is that um, she's not supposed to look the exact same. And, um, although and the, there's something there's something ineffably different about her. You and in the script, uh, just so everyone knows, and we're going to have a script episode eventually. We have so many episodes coming up. Um, the script says about that scene: Rachel appears. And quote unquote authentic and inauthentic, so you guys can take that however you mean. I mean, mm. I, th- I think she's completely authentic, but there is something inauthentic about her too. There's something kind of like she is a ghost, um, right? Like there's something right. unbelievable about her, um, right? And I think everything is unbelievable about her. No one can believe what they're seeing, and I think that's also affecting right. what we're seeing when you're looking at something and you don't believe it. So whatever it is in our lives 
say someone's talking about something that they truly believe, whether it's a religion or you're looking at a painting of a transfigured Christ and you are an atheist or you're an agnostic and you're not, you're going to look at that with disbelief. It is not going to seem authentic to you. Um, Mm -hmm. It is going to seem like a myth. It's going to be a fairy tale. You're going to be like, oh, that's really well done, but I don't believe it. Um, There's something about it. And I feel like Rachel, that Rachel in this scene is the transfiguration of Christ in many ways. It's, it's the return of like, uh, it's so many things for so many people and we're all looking at her very differently. Um, And that's, that's a, a, I would say that that's a testament to the the work that was done on her um, because Sean Young was on set and we'll find out more about that later on. Um, But yeah, I I just think uh, this is a door for a larger discussion for sure. Yeah, certainly. Agreed. So we were, we're going to pass this off to, First, um, it's going to be some dialogue from Sean Young and an interview that she had. And then the next uh, is going to be a 30-minute interview that I had uh, conducted with Richard Clegg, the VFX supervisor, on 2049 and his experiences on set because he was there uh, with Sean Young, with the actress who is the stand-in for Rachel. And so I will let them take it away. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Yeah, thanks. Talk soon. In an interview she gives with a radio station, Sean Young discusses her participation in the visual effects for Blade Runner 2049. Okay, so you're you're in the original Blade Runner. Now Blade Runner's out again. They've CGI'd you from the past and gave you a credit as an acting coach? Acting coach was that? No, something, I read something that, weird. Yeah, they were just—it was an article that was, was an article. Was an acting coach to yourself, did, did essentially. They, did, so, uh, I think it was somebody. This being is why cheeky. I don't read the press. Yeah, so did, did they get in touch with you? And oh no, you, I got paid. I got did? flown out there. I, I, you know, I think honestly, I think it was an Alcon Entertainment insurance policy because I think to not put me in the movie would have been kind of strange. Right. And and I'm not, in my personal opinion, in it enough. But the whole storyline is about my character from the original and and what was nice is i went to alcon entertainment and i said well could you give my son a job so they did actually give my youngest son a job and uh the upm called me up and said well what what department would you like him in and i said you mean i get to choose so put put him in the camera department they get all the respect but i said ask quinn so Quinn wanted to be in the visual effects department, and he worked with Joe Waymeyer, who did Inception, and John sure. Nelson, who's done a lot of uh, special effects. And he was there the entire shoot and also the six months in post-production. They were very fond of him. That's awesome. That's, That's a awesome. pretty awesome uh, expo. That's a, he's got a good mom. Yeah, well, it, and it's also like a four-year, you know, actual college education sure. working for them. Sure. Because he, now he knows Adobe Premiere by heart. He knows Logic. He knows... Uh, it, I don't know the names of all sure, of them, all this special effects software. But I haven't, I haven't seen the reboot of Blade Runner, and and I told you what happened during the first Blade Runner, but we won't get into all that. <laughs> so are you, are you in Blade Runner as yourself now at all? <laughs> no, but they flew you out for the premiere. Yeah, and yeah. well, not the premiere. I was there in Budapest for about three days, but was it was kind of strange, and I, it did end up making me feel a little bit like a dinosaur because I got there. And it really ended up that my job was to sit next to Denis Villeneuve, the director, and watch as the stuff was going on. And then I worked about, as the shoot was going on, and then I worked about an hour in front of a camera going, ooh, yeah. Doing, (laughs) you know, doing facial expressions so that they could CGI it later. I haven't gotten to see it either, but have you, you haven't seen it. I've seen it twice now, yeah. Uh, Were you happy with the way the CGI stuff turned out? 
Um, I, it was okay. I didn't. I, I thought I, my interpretation was that they put clips in from the original Blade Runner uh, because this, this, they wanted to sort of reinforce that sequence. Gotcha. You know, and I think, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I might be prejudiced. <laughs> As mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I was able to sit down and talk to Richard Clegg, the visual effects supervisor for the Motion Picture Company, to discuss the detail of their work on bringing back Rachel for Blade Runner 2049. First of all, thank you for coming on the show, or thank you for taking this call. The first question that I really have is, um, what was the planning like for a scene like this? How extensive was that? Okay, sure. Well, I mean, to, be, to begin with, you know, storyboards that drafted up, um, and then, um, you know, there's kind of the scenes designed this way. So once, uh, once all that's sort of settled and we've got an idea of the shots, the next important step is to figure out, okay, uh, we, we, know what, we know what the shots are going to entail, so we know what we have to build. Um, so really, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of planning that goes up. You know, most of it for sort of Rachel, uh, specifically for doing sort of a digital human at that level is all kind of data gathering and, and, and things like this. So it's not necessarily specific to the shots themselves, but it's more um, sort of data capture um, that we then use uh, to sort of build, build our digital Rachel. And during this time, obviously, I, I would say, and maybe you agree or you don't agree, at this, up to this point, the best digital recreation of a person I have seen was Grand Moff Tarkin. Did, was that out when you guys were working on Rachel? Yeah, it came out whilst we're working on it. Um, so, so yeah, I remember, I remember going to see that in, in the cinema. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so now I remember seeing that in the cinema and yeah, I agree. They did a, they did a fantastic job um, on uh, Rogue One. And what did you, while you guys were working on Rachel and you've seen that, what were your, how did you then, decide, okay, how do we make this even better than that? Because in my opinion, the Rachel in Blade Runner, not just because I'm a fan, but just objectively, is the most incredible digital effect I've ever seen. How did you oh, guys, cool. how did you guys you. say, how do you, how, how do you, how did you approach them? How do we make this better? How do we even make it more real? Um, okay, so, I mean, obviously, yeah, obviously I was watching that, uh, and, you know, that's what set the bar pretty high. Um, I mean, it, it was kind of a different, slightly different challenge as well. Um, I think sort of uh, Denis and uh, Denis Villeneuve, the director, and uh, John Nelson, um, the visual effects supervisor uh, for the production side. Um, those guys were smart. You know, they knew they knew that it was a really hard challenge, so they wanted to keep the shot count minimal, and also dialogue down to a minimum as well. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think with Tarkin, one of the one of the hard things that they had to do was that there was a lot of dialogue. So there's a lot of movement and muscles happening, you know, on the face. Um, whereas with Rachel, there's a different challenge. I mean, there was still, there's still a lot of movement because it's, it's, you know, sort of shots at near 4k resolution. So, and the head's quite big on screen and, and obviously she's cut against Harrison Ford playing Deckard and, and it's a really emotional scene. So our challenge really was just, conveying all that emotion in, in, um, in sort of a subtle way, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, that, that, was, that, was the, that was the trickiest thing because I think it's, it's easy to build a, 
well, it's not easy, but it's, it's, it's fairly commonplace and straightforward now to be able to build a, a convincing digital head that's kind of static. I think the largest, the biggest problem is moving it, you know, and, ha- and having sort of, sort of convincing movement and making it feel like there's a soul behind the eyes. And, you know, you believe that there's a, there's a living entity in front of you. So for me, we spent a lot of time just looking at eyes and, and getting emotion into those eyes and getting soul. Um, I don't think when I was watching Rogue One there was anything specific that I looked at and thought, right, we can do we could do that better. I think I just we just I just had to look at like our challenge as what it was um, and sort of ring fence that and think about it uh, in its own terms, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen uh, in other films, like I believe it was a, a Marvel film where they used Robert Downey Jr. and they de-aged him. Uh, one of my questions I- was about, obviously. Sean Young is older, but was the thought ever to de-age her? Put her. What what uh, was his decision making process in terms of? Okay, we're just going to completely replace the head, and uh, build scratch build essentially a, a new Rachel. How did that even come about? Makes sense. So so that's that's um, before my time on the project. I also have insights on that because so I work for NPC and we do you know we do many visual effects, but we were hired to build a, sort of the digital CG, uh, digital Rachel. Um, if they're going to de-age it, you know, there's, um, uh, it would have potentially been a different uh, vendor that would have done this. Okay. And so I think that's, that's the sort of decision that John uh, Nelson will make early on. And I think that lots of things contribute to that. I mean, um, again, you know, the scene has a lot of sort of nuanced subtle emotions and things like that. And I feel like when you're doing uh, de-aging where you're taking, you know, photography of, of a person and then you're sort of doing w- what we call 2D manipulation to this or 2.5D manipulation where you're taking the actual footage and you're just removing wrinkles and removing creases, I think you can lose a lot of uh, very subtle movements on the face that give it emotion, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that was kind of an important thing. And then there's, there's also uh, the necessity for... Uh, um, an exact likeness. I mean, for example, Robert Downey Jr., say, we, we don't really rem- remember him as a younger self, uh, as sort of an iconic figure in film. You know, we, he just, it's okay if it just kind of looks like him, but a bit younger. Whereas the, a good reason to go down the full CG route for Rachel is that it's not just, it's not just making Sean Young today look younger. It's, it's really getting exactly as she was in the, you know, 1981 original movie. So if you want an exact perfect copy and clone and replica, I think uh, it was the right approach to take. Yeah, uh, for sure. And I have seen the, the digital dub, uh, the, the, the video, of course, that you guys released or somebody released for you guys of, of your work and the tests that you did with scenes from 20, uh, the 2019 Blade Runner and, of course, to my eye, you know, there, there's just no difference. It's amazing. So as you approached uh, recreating this Rachel, was there any uh, direction in terms of, okay, you need to make this look just like her, but there needs to be a little bit of a difference? Um, what is So that people can, maybe people's eyes are saying, hey, wow, that's Rachel, but something's different about her. Was that intentional? Uh, how did you approach that? Yeah, no, so so th- that's that's one of the, the, the hardest things because um, no, the brief was make it exactly like Rachel from the okay. original movie. It has, it has to be exactly. This is like John would constantly repeat this. 
and uh, and it was particularly from the opening scene in the original movie, uh, not the opening scene in the original movie, but the, the opening scene for Rachel when you first mm-hmm. see her when she walks in, uh, she first meets Deckard uh, in Tyrell's office. That's the that was the, the we want we were basically taking that and putting it into uh, Roger Deakins' beautiful stage and beautiful lighting. So. The hard thing there is, obviously, we can make someone look real and put them in the shot and look convincing. But if we need people to remember it looked, it, it is exactly like Rachel, you can have problems there because the original movie was shot with different film, you know, anamorphic lenses, different cameras. Obviously, the lighting conditions are very different as well. So some of those things, obviously, people look very different when you put them in different lighting or put them behind different cameras. And, you know, so so it was doing those doing those uh, tests where we recreated shots from the original movie that was kind of part of our our proof that any differences if if you if anyone feels any differences when they're watching the shot it is uh it's simply just uh, that's what she would look like in those conditions you know it, it, it's just the, the difference is the camera or the lens or the lighting um because um so so yeah what what we did was we actually we we made those shots and we took uh, whole scenes from the original movie and we just cut out the real shots and put our digital ones in. And this was to kind of prove that Rachel looked good and it, it was believable that it was actually her. And we played that for Denis and John um, and, uh, uh, and it would, they struggled to guess which ones were the CG shots and which ones were the real shots. So that's when we knew we had like a, we had a really good likeness for her. Yeah, it was uh, yeah. incredible, absolutely incredible. Uh, and how long that process of testing? Because from what I gather, based on what I've read, did you guys have to kind of do those tests before they gave the okay to do the recreation for the film? No, that that that, that, that was actually a little bit later on because you know there's still a lot of work to get those done. So basically, as we were building our digital asset, we were putting her into the shots uh, for the 2049 movie. And at the same time, in parallel, we were working up these sort of side test shots. So they were finished. We were all in all, we had about um, sort of production time, sort of nine, 10 months uh, to work on it uh, after the shoot. Uh, and then um, those, we finished those about four months before the end, those test shots. Um, we were working on them actively as we went along. It was, it was kind of like, uh, we used them as a way to verify and calibrate all the work we were doing as we were building her, you know, we'd put them in those shots and just check it out and make sure that, um, you know, spot the difference, basically. Did you miss me? Don't you love me? And during a process like that, when you are, you're, you know, you're supervising these visual effects and you're, you know, these people are, you know, the people that are working under you, they're doing these things. How do you guys get a, uh, uh, a fresh eye because you're staring at the screen perhaps so much you're doing you're so 
um, close to this material, how do you then step back and say, okay, how does this look from someone who hasn't seen it? How do you get that kind of uh, feedback? Yeah, it's really hard, actually. That's one of the biggest that's one of the biggest challenges with visual effects because sometimes when you, you know, you're looking at it and you're trying to find what the problems are, when you look at something, it might be wrong, but you've been looking at it so long that it's starting to feel right, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's many little tricks you can do. I mean, we have, like in our office here, we have many different methods of projecting and viewing images. So first thing I do is just go and look at it in different theaters that we have or different monitors and uh, different color calibrations, put some different grades on it. Uh, so we can kind of, you sort of see it with what we call fresh eyes. You know, you can have another look. Another way to do it is to kind of flop the image. Uh, so you kind of look at a mirrored version. Mm -hmm. That's a handy little trick to just help you, uh, help you see it as someone, you know, just who's never seen it before. Because it's amazing what just mirroring something does to your perception. You know, it really changes. When you've looked at a photograph for a very, 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 very long time, like every day for the last four months, and you mirror it, it, it you know, it, you, do see it, you do see it fresh again, which is quite helpful. Um, but that's it. Otherwise, you, you know, I mean, I think part of, part, of, part of our job is studying and analyzing and breaking down images to a very, you know, fine level. So I think part of getting used to it also means that you're able to then see things that you potentially wouldn't have been able to see earlier on. You know, you kind of get familiar with certain things and you're looking out for certain problems. So there's, there's pros to having it burnt into your brain as well. Yeah, uh, I, I, I can believe it. I, I can't even imagine the, the task. Uh, would, you, would you say this, the challenge of recreating Rachel was probably the biggest thing that, you, that um, your company has done thus far? Um, I don't know about that. I mean, it's certainly, it's, certainly, um, it's certainly a big deal for us, and it's certainly, you know, we're certainly very proud of it. Uh, but I mean, we're quite a massive facility. You know, we have offices in uh, London, Vancouver, Montreal, Bangalore, Los Angeles. The NBC is quite a big business, and we have so many projects and so many films that we're working on at any one time. Um, you know, uh, so so the, you know, I don't think there's there's loads of good work coming out. Um, for me personally, it was. Um, I remember when when I was asked to do it. Uh, because I, I was actually um, worked uh, as a CG supervisor um, under Shelton Stopsack, who was our VFX supervisor uh, for Arnold, uh, to doing digital Arnold on Terminator Genesis as well. So I knew the kind of challenge of doing digital people because I'd kind of been through that experience uh, before. So when I heard about Blade Runner, I was obviously sort of nervous because I knew I knew how hard it is and 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 how much effort and, and, and also how, how it's very important to get it ex exactly right because the problem with digital people, if you don't get it right, if it's just slightly off, then it really throws people out and, and, um, and it can kind of kill, kill the mood of the scene, you know? So you can't just do like a, a, an 80% job or a 90% job or, you know, it's 100% or nothing at all for success. Um, but I was super excited too because I'm a massive fan of the original movie and uh, like uh, when I heard Denis was directing as well, I really liked Denis' films and so I thought it was going to be awesome. So I was kind of had a weird mix of being sort of uh, petrified and terrified and, and also super happy and excited at the same time. Yeah, I can imagine. And, you know, and for many of us in kind of the world of fandom, uh, which can be very volatile, pretty much the standard has been 
uh, Grand Moff Tarkin of late, like in terms of, wow, they recreated yeah. someone who isn't just gone. I mean, the character isn't gone, but the actor is dead, and it's amazing. And now I would say confidently Rachel's the most incredible thing anyone's ever seen in terms of uh, a, a photorealistic exact duplicate of, you know, an actress who's still living, um, bring your character back. In fact, when I saw the film for the first time, I thought, okay, they probably just put it, like, it was so convincing to me. I thought, okay, they probably just put her in costume and they made her lose a bunch of weight. And then they maybe, I, like, I, I just wasn't, I was not convinced that what I was seeing was a digital recreation. I just wasn't convinced that, that that's how real it was for me. Um, and as someone who, Rachel is one of my favorite characters of all time in any film, and I've kind of carried that character with me, so to kind of see her kind of, that moment for Deckard in the film was also a moment for me. It was very powerful, and uh, again, a tribute to your your work on the uh, on it. Um, so yeah, it, it's pretty incredible. I really appreciate saying that. I've got a big fat grin on my face right now. <laughs> Made my day. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I mean, me, me too. I mean, she's such an iconic character. She's so important to the the franchise, you know, and and the the first the first movie. I mean, you know, yeah, it was definitely a cool cool gig to get. Yeah, uh, was there what was maybe I don't know if you even think in these terms or all of your team who worked on this think in these terms, but was there a hardest was the a hardest point in these like what is it, 30 second, 40 second scene to get right about Rachel? Was there anything, was it, whether her eye movement, her, her, her lips, I know she does talk a little bit. Was there anything particular that was a challenge for it? Yeah, I think definitely the dialogue, like, like I said, you know, it's always emotion and, and, and movement is the hardest thing on digital people. And so obviously the more complicated the face is moving, the more difficult it becomes because I mean, you know, we do. We we study a lot of anatomy as well, and facial anatomy, and trying to understand how it works on a real human, so we can kind of reproduce it. And there's just so much happening under the surface of uh, of, of the face. It, there's just so many muscles and so many weird different densities of tissue and all kinds of stuff. So anytime it's moved, the more the more she has to move, the harder it is. And the talking shot is definitely the, the hardest. Um, and I think, uh, but overall as well, it's, it's getting soul behind the eyes. And I think that is something that we really put in there as a priority. Um, before anything, we just made sure that we could feel that the sort of longing and, yeah. and the sadness in her eyes. And I think that was, um, that, that was, that was the biggest thing for me, especially just getting, getting that, getting that right. Well, you guys nailed it. Uh, I, here's a, a controversial question. What were you guys, uh, told or directed in terms of eye color? <laughs> yeah, okay, well, of course, it's like, you know, because it's the line, isn't there? Her eyes are green. Um, well, we, we, we did deliberate on that for a minute. Uh, but in the end, it was like, you know what, well, we, we just have to match. We just have to match Rachel from the original movie. So we went brown. We, we matched Sean Young. We, we tried to build Sean Young as faithfully as possible with no, no, uh, no custom tweaks. Was there a reason given to you, just because you guys are doing some pretty fundamental work, as to why uh, Deckard would say that to Rachel is why that he would say that. Like, do you guys, did you, were you guys given any background on that or you're like, okay, we're not really worried about that. We're just doing what we're doing. Pretty much the latter. Um, okay. I mean, we, we talked, we talked about it a bit and, 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 that, and our questions, but, um, yeah, no, that was just, uh, that's, that's just a mystery. Okay. Interesting. And, uh, there's I think this... 
There is there is one thing that though I think it came from though is that some people think her eyes are green because in the original movie the void comp test you know and he's he's scanning her and he, uh, Deckard's got his little equipment out and he's got a monitor there. There's some stock footage of a green eye and uh, you can see a green iris on that and I think that's where it comes from. Interesting. Yeah, uh, that's those are deliberations that we've had as well, friends of mine and whatever. That uh, I don't her eyes weren't green, but you know I love mystery and I, I think that that's that's. Uh, it's it's a great mystery to kind of continue to keep. Um, there's one script. Uh, I don't know if you guys. I'm, I'm sure. I don't know exactly how all of this works, of course. But in the script for 2049, there's two words that are used to describe this Rachel that are coming out that that is walking out. And I'm curious if the words one word is authentic, the other word is inauthentic. And uh, I'm curious if that inauthentic word had to translate to what you were doing because it's it's a it's a bit of a dubious word, and it is it does it mean like oh there, Deckard could sense something different about her, and does that translate into the Rachel that you did? Well, I can I can only kind of speak as a fan for that sort of stuff. I can only speak like he was a fan and just kind of throw, throw my guesses on that because for for us for our work it was. It was just match, match the original movie, make an exact copy of Sean Young, and uh, don't ask too many questions. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and uh, during during your process, were were was it a, a a scenario where you're working on it and you're sending the the what you've done and what you've completed to Denis, and then he's giving info feedback, and then you're going back, or how how, how does that work? Okay, right. So that, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, you want the director to be there to direct the performance, right? So mm-hmm. um, we, when we're filming it, there was um, after the shoot. So after we filmed all the the main shots, um, that was with the performance double in place, uh, Lauren. Uh, we then did a Saturday where Sh- and Sean Young was there too, and um, Sean uh, reacted, performed all the shots. So we had we had like the real Rachel um, do, doing. Um, doing what she's doing with her face. Uh, and we also filmed uh, Lauren, and this was in some uh, calibrated performance capture uh, setup. And from this, therefore, we had multiple takes of reference of, um, of these shots being you know, uh, carried out. So from there, what we did is um, we started off by sort of blocking it, what we call blocking it, where we sort of have a very rough basic performance. And with those as well, we, we sat and studied with John and Denis um, all the different footage that we had of all the different takes of all the different performances of both actresses, Lauren and Sean. Uh, and from those, Denis would like tease out, we'd look at what we had uh, for our digital Rachel. And then we'd look at the, the um, it's all about reference, 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 right? So Denis and John, would, we'd go through with them together and we'd just study and watch all the different takes. And then you would say, oh, I really like this moment here where she has a little flutter in her eye. And in this shot, I really feel the sadness that I want to see. And in this shot, I, I have this aspect of the performance that I want to see. So that's how we kind of, we, we kind of guided it. You know, Denis would look at that stuff, say if he was feeling it or not and what was working for him. And then we'd look for different reference material where we could kind of beg, borrow and steal and then copy that onto our, um, onto our Rachel. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I, and I knew that Sean Young was on set and I, of course, in your video that was released, they show, you know, uh, her head being scanned or whatever, just different positions of her head. Um, when it, in terms of Lauren, did you guys, 
how how, did, how was she chosen to be the stand-in? Is it something that you guys have a hand in, or do you have specifications like she needs to be this high? She, her features need to be kind of similar. How did, how did that process work? So they have a casting department, and then um, you know, and John would explain to them what he needed. And obviously, we're keeping the body right, so we want him to replace from the head up. So Lauren, I think, was selected based on height and build and uh, and all the rest of it. So we had a, a body that we could use. And that was the that was the and the, uh, someone who's the correct height. Uh, that was the kind of main criteria. Okay, uh, yeah, that's 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 fascinating. I mean, I, I you know, of course, obviously in the video they they show the scenes of of Lauren walking out and all of that. Uh, were were any of you guys present on on set for that moment? Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. I was there with a, a, a small team as well, uh, representing NPC. Uh, because as things happen, you know, we, we have also have like lots of witness cameras and um, lots of things out on, on set. So we capture data as they're shooting to kind of help us out. Um, so, yeah, we're there sort of um, advising and requesting us, uh, where we can uh, and be just being part of it. Okay. And let me ask you just a, a maybe more of an emotional question. What was that like for you? Uh, of course, you're, you're there on set and you have a lot of work to do, but it's very moody. The lighting is very specific. There you have uh, Harrison Ford is Deckard. Sean Young is there. How was that for you to feel that? It, it was really good because, like I said, I was super excited to be part of this 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 movie because you know, like I'm a fan of the original, so it was kind of a bit of a dream come true. And I remember, I remember, you know, one particular moment very well is when I first saw the stage that was lit. Uh, I mean, it was an absolutely stunning stage. You know, it was completely covered with water with an island in the middle. Um, and the lighting was just beautiful. And I remember walking in and just sort of being sort of like in awe of the, the size and the scale of it as well um, and how amazing it looked. And then uh, the sort of visual effects person in me started scanning the room for problems and I could see all the, and there was not, you know, with all the caustic lighting and there, there was a giant ring on the ceiling of light spinning. There was not one single static light in the scene, which is, makes our life more difficult. So. The first thing I do is just go through and like spot all the problems and, and start planning for for how we're going to overcome them. And how long? But, was, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, but on an emotional level, it was like a really amazing experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, the film itself that that moment is very impactful, uh, uh, just incredibly so. It's my favorite moment in the film. Uh, it's also you know you're seeing the you know the the person that you love come back and then she's gone again. Um, so it's 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 a colossal moment uh how long were you how long did this scene how long were you there like how long did this whole thing take to shoot it was uh three days the the that scene uh, specifically and then we did so that was uh wednesday thursday, wednesday thursday friday in september and then on saturday that's when we did our um facial capture day but it, that was a little more casual and the facial yeah. capture day included uh sean young yeah, that's right. I mean, Sean, Sean was there for the whole thing as well. I mean, um, when they're filming as well, Sean was, Sean was, Sean was with us the whole time. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's fascinating. Um, can I, uh, as I kind of close this, just kind of a last question I have for you is, uh, what, how did the film itself impact you? Are, uh, are you able to kind of remove yourself and enjoy the film for what it is? Like, how does it sit with you? Yeah, in, in a way, it was quite cool that we, because we, we did a few other bits and pieces throughout the movie. Um, we actually did a digital Ryan Gosling as well at one point when, when he's fighting with, um, with love. Oh. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, you know, all the other stuff is obviously much, much smaller. So 
for, for me, it was quite good because there was so much of the movie that I hadn't seen and didn't know anything about. And I hadn't even read the script, you know, like normally we'll sort of read the script for some of the movies because it helps when we're doing the visual effects. But, you know, I didn't really need to do that, so I didn't. And um, so I got to watch it as a fresh, apart from obviously that one scene, which granted is a, is a big moment, but it was amazing. I loved the whole movie. It was super good. I mean, I think, um, you know, it did definitely did the first film proud and, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to see it many times. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I, it was, it was, uh, you know, you don't, you know, Blade Runner is a holy grail, as you very well know, and it's, you know, one of the things where you hear about the, the a film like this or you hear about sequels being made to films that are very, um, that are just, you know, untouchable in many ways and uh, Denny knocked it out of the park. I, I expected to kind of walk out thinking, ah, whatever, but I couldn't leave the theater afterwards. It was so impactful to, for me. It was such a, a master stroke of genius. But uh, Everything, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah, and really... And uh, again, a tribute, you know, my, my favorite scene is the scene that you guys did. It, it is meeting kind of the love of your life again. And Rachel has, has always been that. And so, uh, again, it was it was an amazing scene. And uh, I, it's one of those things where it's, um, I don't know if you've seen Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. I kind of compare the two scenes because there's a moment in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo when Kim Novak's character of Judy Barton is then recreated to portray Madeline Elster uh, and there's a moment where she comes out of the bathroom and she's walking towards through light to meet him again as this character yeah. who has been dead and there's there's a there's a real similarity between that scene that you guys did and the scene in, in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo where these men are facing these recreations of women that they've loved and it's very very powerful um, I don't know if you guys knew that or if you had known maybe it's just uh, you know coincidence um, but it's a very powerful coincidence, and I thought it was uh, a tribute to the work that you've done. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, as well, we had um, we had our little trip down memory lane where the it was actually that that shot from the original movie that was included was actually thrown in quite late towards the end, um, and we did a little bit of work on that to kind of retime it and make it a little bit more dreamy or whatever. Okay. But that, that was another thing for us as well, just seeing the seeing the actually you know, original Rachel, uh, in very, very close to, closely followed by our digital one. Um, That's yeah. awesome. Well, I uh, thank you so much for taking part in this. I really appreciate it. I know you're, you're busy. Um, but, uh, this film has really impacted the world, I would say. And certainly the fan community is one of those rare sequels that might even be better than the original. I know I just said that, uh, and I love the original. Um, so thank you for your time so much. Thank you very much. Cheers. Have a good day. Thanks. Her eyes were green. To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, 
and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Kalantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. 